Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org, I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm joined by our co host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Thanks, Amba. On today's show, we're going to look at the growing backlash to Eric Adams' appointment of several brazen homophobes to his administration. Also, on the first day of Women's History Month, we're going to speak with Linda Alcoff. She's a leading critical race theorist who will talk with us about why the left should stop running from the controversy around critical race theory and see it as an opportunity. And in our final segment, we'll hear from Christina Zavarucha about her experiences coming of age in New York's Ukrainian-American diaspora and how it has shaped her life. But first, we're going to look at the growing outrage in the LGBT community here in New York about Eric Adams' decision to appoint three individuals to his administration with a long history of homophobia. The appointees are former city council member Fernando Cabrera, who once championed the government of Uganda, which was calling for the death penalty to be applied to gays. And Eric Salgado, a longtime ally of the anti-gay national organization for women. On Thursday, LGBTQIA plus advocates rallied outside City Hall to denounce Adams' choices. This is Kathy Marino-Thomas and then Cecilia Gentili speaking at the rally. Fernando Cabrera not only spoke out in support of Uganda's persecution of our community, he went out of his way to visit the country. He too apologized via Facebook hours before his appointment. As a marriage advocate for years, Pardon me if I need a little more concrete proof of evolution. You know, as a, a trans woman, uh, I am very uh, used to uh, uh, experience uh, uh, transphobia, uh, terrible comments, usual harassment, uh, walking in the streets, in the train, uh, in uh, every place in the city. And I can tell you that transphobia and homophobia are uh, consistently happening in the city at all times. It was a couple of months ago that two gay men were attacked in Bushwick. They were attacked with, 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 with glass bottles, right? They could have died, right? They were attacked while they were like yell at homophobic slurs, right? And as a, a trans woman, I was punched in in the face in the train a couple of years ago on the L train, right? And nobody did nothing about it. So if we think that we are so far removed from homophobia and transphobia in the city, we are totally wrong. You know, we are totally wrong. And this mayor, by this appointment, is sending a message that that is okay. And guess what? That is not the New York that I moved from another country to, to get to live my life. Joining us now to talk more about this is Amelia DeCodden. She is a trans socialist organizer and Democratic Party district leader in Assembly District 37 in Sunnyside, Queens, who first became politically active in the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. Amelia, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi there, John. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, so for starters, you were at uh, last Thursday's rally outside City Hall. 
Uh, can you talk about the range of groups there and how to, how it made you feel when it was over? Yes. No, it was a really diverse group of equality uh, based organizations, LGBTQ advocacy organizations, uh, LGBTQ elected officials, allied elected officials, and more. Uh, it was really heartening to see that coalition because uh, not only does uh, appointments like this affect, you know, queer people, you know, for the basis of being queer, but there's also a lot of intersection um, for how, like, the nature of these biases affect people who are, you know, not just queer, but also, you know, immigrants, you know, black, uh, brown, Asian, um, you know, it affects people who are sex workers. And so having that intersectionality represented in this in this protest, I think, really drives that point home and how important uh, resisting these appointments is. Right, Amelia. And can you tell us more about these individuals and their past examples of homophobic behavior, please? Right. So I think like the really salient example here is Fernando Cabrera. He is a evangelical uh, preacher. He's a former city council member, and he has not only, you know, traded in homophobic as well as, you know, anti-abortion rhetoric, uh, you know, in the past, you know, and during his tenure as council member and at the pulpit, but he has even gone so far as to go to Uganda and rally there in support of uh, the bill that was being proposed at the time there that would have allowed the government to execute uh, people who are gay, you know, people who were accused of being gay. And so, you know, not only do we just see, you know, a personal, you know, difference in beliefs or like, oh, uh, I don't like what you're doing, but you have the right to do it. We see someone who is uh, materially invested in seeing, um, you know, gay people and queer people, um, you know, marginalized, criminalized. And although he, you know, walked it back and claimed that he didn't understand what was going on, uh, he's in Uganda killed. Right. And, and um, can you talk about uh, what office he was appointed to and, and also who his uh, uh, boss will be, uh, uh, Pastor Guilford uh, Monroe, another vocal opponent of gay marriage? Sure. So Cabrera was appointed to the um, mayor's office of faith-based initiatives and uh, you know public partnerships. Um, I might have the name like a little off, but the essence there is the same. Um, and that office, you know, is, is how the mayor, uh, you know, forms relationships with, uh, you know, not only, you know, faith communities across the city and, you know, in, in particular, it's important to note, not just Christians, but all faith communities, um, as well as, uh, you know, relating to, um, you know, community organizations, you know, of all stripes that, you know, have nothing to do with faith and, Having someone in that role, um, while, you know, the mayor might think that, you know, having a former councilman and the former preacher, you know, might make sense uh, in that con- in the context of the faith-based role, uh, this role, you know, has a lot more far-reaching implications in terms of how the mayor's office is going to interact with, you know, many marginalized communities, you know, not to mention, you know, people of faith who are also queer. Um, and in that position, he'd have the ability to... Um, you know, ha- like have a materially negative impact on those people's lives by, you know, pushing his biases and letting them, you know, affect his decision making. 
Um, his boss, uh, you know, Monroe in, in that, uh, in that group of three, I'm less familiar with. I do know that he also has a history of, of homophobic and, and anti-choice comments. Um, and I think that, uh, if anything, it goes to show that the mayor, you know, not only, you know, made a, you know, one particular oversight with, you know, Cabrera, but that he, uh, you know, simply does not care about appointing any number of people with these views. Um, and, you know, has even gone so far as to say that uh, it's his prerogative as mayor to make these decisions, um, even though he claimed to, you know, support the LGBTQ community in, in you know, his you know, tenure as, you know, state senator, borough president, and so forth. Right. And, and just talk quickly about Eric Salgado being appointed to the Office of Immigrant Affairs, but then speak on why you think he may have made these appointments. Um, it's not like there aren't many other capable, mm-hmm. that he, capable people that he could have found to fill these positions. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, please. Right. So Salgado is also a really frustrating choice um, in particular because the mayor's office of immigration affairs is touching a community that, you know, is, is already so heavily marginalized in, in, you know, the United States and, and to a lesser extent New York city, but still, and the most, like the intersection of the most marginalized within that is the queer, the queer immigrant community. You have people who are facing not only discrimination, you know, within, uh, you know, their families and their communities, but, simultaneously, you know, facing, uh, you know, repression from the state and the risk of deportation. Um, so if you have someone who is seeking assistance because their family kicked them out of their house and they no longer have uh, a place to maintain a job that was, you know, keeping their, you know, their visa active and they're at risk of deportation, um, an office that is led by someone with these views um, could make the difference between that person you know, surviving uh, in their home in New York City or getting sent back to a place that they left for a reason. Um, you know, Salgado, uh, you know, has a long-term relationship with Eric Adams. Um, you know, I, I did some research before this and I saw that he, there's a picture on his Twitter right now of, from 2018 him with Eric Adams. And so I think that him, uh, Monroe, and Cabrera, you know, have these long-lasting relationships with the mayor. I think that's why they were chosen. I don't think that Adams was going out of his way to, um, you know, pick the worst people for these jobs or, like, incite controversy. Um, But he certainly is apathetic to the consequences of people, of picking people that he might have relationships with or that he owes favors to, uh, you know, against the you know, real negative impact that they're going to have on the queer community. Because in all of these positions, it's not just that these people are going to, you know, spread their views or otherwise, you know, contribute to some sort of negative atmosphere, or, you know, bad vibes or whatever you want to call it. They're going to be in decision, decision-making positions where they'll be able to, you know, directly affect the, you know, lives and material, you know, prosperity of heavily marginalized groups of New Yorkers. Right. And we want to uh, look a, a little beyond New York as well. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, public officials who are in a position to harm vulnerable communities, last mm-hmm. week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, announced an investigation into gender-affirming health care for transgender youth 
as, quote, child abuse. Abbott's directive to state agencies says parents of trans children receiving the often life-saving care should be investigated and that anyone, including doctors, nurses, and teachers who fail to report the treatment to authorities could face criminal liability. Uh, how, how has this uh, latest attack on the uh, trans community, how is it uh, uh, affecting you all? And, and, and what are you hearing from Texas? It's really distressing is how I'll put it. Um, we're seeing, you know, Republican governors all across the country. And now in this case in Texas, not only passing laws to criminalize trans people, but specifically going after trans children, um, as well as using existing laws meant to, you know, combat, you know, real instances of child abuse and child endangerment um, and turn, turning them against trans kids. We, know that you know trans kids are you know especially vulnerable in general in this country because of the barriers that are um you know placed on um you know getting transition care you know not to mention the fact that uh not only do you have to you know access that care but your family has to be willing to access it for you um and then to see this uh you know not just bar- like additional barrier you know come down from the state of Texas, but also this, you know, proactive, you know, criminalization of uh, them and their families. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just really, it's unfathomable to the level of harm this is going to, to cause to these, to these kids and to their families. Um, we're seeing, I think, at least one lawsuit that was filed this morning by the ACLU on behalf of a family that was being investigated by the, you know, Texas, you know, uh, Department of Child Services. Um, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that that lawsuit is going to at least hopefully put a stay on this, on this, you know, order from the governor, but there's no reason to think that the law or the constitution are going to, you know, perfectly protect our community in this instance. It's the only way, you know, around this is, you know, building an organized resistance to the kinds of people that, uh, you know, see, you know, the trans community as red meat for their base that they're willing to sacrifice for. And, and, you know, you say that things like this can cause trans children to kill themselves. And last month, South Dakota's Republican governor, Christy Noem signed a similar law to the one we just described in Texas for South Dakota. And there's a statistic running around right now that 90% of South Dakota's queer community is diagnosed with either anxiety or depression. Just your response to that. Uh, um, and then a little bit of elaboration on the experience of gender dysphoria and, and how that's so overwhelming. Absolutely. So I, I think lot, uh, so take your time. No worries. I think uh, you know for for your viewers who you know might not you know know the specifics of gender dysphoria. Uh, you know, you find yourself feeling like a stranger inside your own body. Like if you're a teenager, you might not necessarily you know not everyone has the same experience. I certainly didn't really understand what was going on, or I didn't frame it in the sense of. I have a man's body, but I want to be a woman or I am a woman or, you know, my, this puberty is portraying me or so forth. But I knew that something was wrong and it caused, caused me distress. Um, and for trans kids who have supportive families and an environment that allow them to, you know, come to the understanding that they're not, they're not just, you know, there isn't just something vaguely wrong with them, but that they're trans and that 
there is a path to, you know, getting the bodies that would make them feel comfortable to know that and then see your body change because the state is forcing you to undergo the wrong puberty. The people I know who've undergone that because they didn't have supportive families themselves, you know, in the past you know decade or so, it's extremely distressing um, because a lot of these changes aren't reversible. Um, they require, you know, surgery or, you know, hair removal or so forth that is, you know, painful and difficult and expensive and does not get the same kind of results that simply avoiding the wrong puberty would. And so kids who are, you know, being prevented from, from, you know, accessing care, it's not just postponing something or, you know, taking away an amount of time they could have to live with their authentic gender. It's causing, you know, irreversible permanent harm to their bodies and subsequently their psyche. And it's not a coincidence that uh, trans people who, you know, face gender dysphoria either because they didn't realize they were trans until adulthood or were forced to undergo puberty have a much higher rate of, like you said, anxiety, depression, and both of those things internally to a higher incidence of, you know, suicidal ideation and, you know, suicide attempts. So statistically, you know, I'm not sure how, when we'll, if we'll see, you know, instances reported, this isn't the kind of thing that comes on the news or that I would want to come on the news, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, over the next year or two years or so forth, if this loss or if this order stays in place, that we'll, you know, find out that the incidence of suicide amongst trans kids in Texas, you know, has risen. It's like okay. it, you know, has or will in South Dakota. Right. And we have to go shortly, but in our last 30 seconds, uh, I was just curious, I mean, obviously there's a tremendous repression that the transgender community is facing. Um, why, why do you also choose to organize uh, as a socialist, given, again, all the challenges and absolutely. I mean, I, trans the, people face? The re- absolutely. The reason I organize as a socialist first and not just as a trans right activist is because all of these struggles are intertwined in, you know, the material basis of where these forces that, you know, empower Republicans who are antagonistic to us or empower Democrats who are apathetic to us. You know, we, we need to target that foundation. And that foundation is, you know, capitalism. It's what causes these politicians to respond to those interests rather than to the interests of the people that they're representing or that the, the people that they are part of as opposed to separate and above from. Um, and so the only way that we're going to be able to dismantle these systems of oppression is to, you know, attack it at the base rather than just, you know, address the symptoms. And in the case of, you know, queer organizing, the symptoms are so bad that they need to be addressed and we don't want to belittle that work at all. There are a lot of people who aren't socialists who are doing who are doing very important work, but the only way that we're going to have you know, really long term, lasting, and permanent uh, solutions to the suppression is, you know, getting rid of capitalism. But it's okay. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but uh, Amelia Ducadden, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you for having me. You bet. We'll be back after a short break, and we'll return with uh, Linda Alkoff, a critical race uh, theorist who has uh, a lot of uh, interesting things to say about how the left should engage with these uh, controversies.
That was a soldier's song performed by the Ukrainian Village Voices based in New York City's East Village. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Amber Gregarian here with John Tarleton. Later in the show, we will be talking with the Ukrainian-American who has a beautiful first-person piece up on independent.org about coming of age in her diasporic community. But now we turn to the raging controversy around critical race theory and how the left should engage with it. In her latest article for The Independent, titled Time for the Left to Embrace Critical Race Theory Debate, Linda Martine Alkoff says that pretending CRT isn't real robs us of the chance to amount a strong defense to it. Martine Alkoff is professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance. Linda, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So in your article, you write that principal defense of critical race theory supporters against right wing attacks has been to claim that its opponents are simply ignorant. They don't know what critical race theory is or that it is only taught in law schools. You argue that this approach is misleading and that the left should instead embrace the CRT debate as an opportunity. Why do you believe that? And also, can you explain what critical race theory originally referred to and what it has come to mean in today's public discourse? It's a lot. Right. Well, you know, I think the the claim that that critical race theory is um, misunderstood by these opponents who are filling uh, parent-teacher organization meetings and school board councils um, I, I think that claim just shows the ignorance, really, of the elites um, that don't understand what what um, the opponents are really saying. I think the opponents are quite clear and correct that what's going on is a huge shift in educational curriculum at every level in our society to bring the difficult and painful aspects of U.S. history to the fore for the, you know, first time really um, beginning to bring them to the fore. And it's going to change um, the next generation because in the, this, if the, the younger generation learns this history from an early age, they can't think the same way about the United States or the mythic representations of us always being on the right side of history or as being fundamentally democratic and egalitarian with just a little bit of deviations over here. So, um, you know, I, I really think uh, we need to uh, we need to listen to what the opponents are saying and read what they're saying. And it's clear that they know what they're talking about. Now, it is true that critical race theory is often used as a specialized term to refer to kind of a grab bag of different approaches in the academy, mostly in starting in law schools, inspired by the legal theorist Derek Bell. But the, you know, the general approach of critical race theory reached well beyond the law schools. The, 
the theory, what hangs together, what, what um, causes this grouping to hang together is the motivation to think past civil rights era, uh, you know, legal thinking and reform thinking. A lot of the reforms that were fought for and people died for and went to jail for in the civil rights movement were one, we got equal employment opportunity commission. We got a lot of uh, voting rights legislation. And then, you know, poverty continued, racial mass car- uh, carceral system grew greater than ever. The police abuse and violence um, increased. Um, so the question was, you know, starting really by the, by the early 1980s, what are we doing wrong in our reform movements? And it wasn't just what we professors are doing wrong, but really how does the whole anti-racist movement need to take a step back and look at our language and our ideas and then take a step forward to the next stage so that we could actually make some real progress. So critical race theory, that that's what critical race theory is. And it's, um, you know, uh, an argument, um, and critical race theorists disagree about this, but it's an argument about how to move forward, and it focuses a lot on um, policies and languages that involve neutrality and universality and equality that look to be non-racist, look to be fair to everybody. And when you look at the effects of the policies, and the um, the actual outcomes of institutions that pursue these policies, you see that there is uh, tremendously different effects, especially for African Americans, Latinx folks, Native American folks. So, um, looking at the effects is a sign that we need to look back at the language and the policies that produced these effects and see how they might need to be changed. And we disagree on that sometimes, but that's the basic project. So really the project of critical race theory is to figure out how to take anti-racism to the next level in this country. And that's what these people do not want to have happen. When you say these people, you're referring to the right wing. Yeah, the the opponents of critical race theory, but it's a pretty popular mass base. So I wouldn't yeah. assume that everybody's consolidated around a particular political ideology. I think some of them have been, um, you know, uh, more motivated by um, a ver- you know a variety of different concerns, con- right. including and, parents' rights. And what would a, a grassroots movement to defend and advance? an anti-racist, social justice-friendly uh, curriculum look like? Uh, right now, all of the energy uh, at the school board level and the local level these days is coming uh, from the from the critics. Yeah, and we, we really are losing an opportunity here, I think, because they're, they've provided an opening for us to contest their interpretation of what the effects of this new curriculum is going to be on their children, on our children, on all of our children. Um, and, and we should take advantage of that. And it needs to be um, rural. It needs to be decentralized. It needs to be all over the country and wherever there you hear 
of a school board or or a meeting that's um, uh, engaging in this activity, what I said in the article is the more hardy of us should go and uh, participate in the discussion and um, raise questions about what are what are the likely effects of for white children when they are not told the truth and, you know, raise questions about non-white children as well. What are the effects on non-white children when their history is treated as, um, you know, a sideline, uh, a, a, a footnote, a something that may get some attention and, and, but can be also set aside if it, harms the psychological or causes psychological distress to white children. What does that tell non-white children? So I think the language of, of parents' rights, you know, has been a pretty brilliant maneuver on the part of the right as a kind of mechanism to thwart social change. And it's being used in the, in the trans fight as your last um, conversation just talked about. It's being used there as well, but yeah. But, you know, I think we can say two things about that. One is that that parents, there's all kind of parents in this country, not just white parents and all kind of kids, but also, you know, families, what parents' rights is doing is it's it's presenting families as this um, the sacrosanct location in which children are cared for and families as havens of care. And the fact is that families are not always havens for children. They are places where uh, we have an epidemic of incest. We have an epidemic of domestic violence and child abuse and so families need to be engaged with the public. They need to be part of the society. It's not that they need to be, you know, have oversight by the social workers, but they need to be in conversation with other institutions in the society because children are not safe. Um, women are not safe. A lot of people are not safe. Trans kids, um, gay kids are not safe in families. So I think we can, we can, um, uh, unite with the desire for safe havens for children and use that precisely to argue for, um, an expansion of our understanding of children's sexualities, an expansion of our understanding of, of the harms of racism on all of us. And, and a way to think about a different future. And in your article, you note that our nation's history isn't solely one of horrible crimes and injustices, but there are also moving stories of resistance that can plant seeds of hope that are often forgotten. What are some of your favorite examples of resistance that you draw inspiration from? And we have uh, just a minute here on this one. Yes, there are lots of positive examples in U.S. history. You know, people are making lists of, of monuments they'd like to see as we take some down and replace them. I mean, Mother Jones leading a, you know, a march of children to uh, fight for workers' rights, right? That's care for the children because children are affected by, by poverty and, uh, and unemployment. 
So uh, we need to rescue people like Mother Jones, like Ann Braden, um, like the many white anti-racist fighters um, who sacrificed and risked their lives, in some cases lost their lives, as well as the many people of color who took enormous risks to try to make this country live up to its claim to be a democracy. And, and real quick, uh, before we go, uh, it, uh, today is the first day of uh, Women's History Month. And, and, and your thoughts on the celebration of Women's History Month, both the, the opportunity to celebrate all the historical accomplishments and contributions women have made, and is, is it also something that is uh, vulnerable perhaps to being co-opted by, uh, you know, corporate ad campaigns and, you know, other things like that? I guess that's sort of the tension there. Yeah. Yes, every social movement, you know, gets co-opted and recuperated. DEI, we, we call it very derogatively in my neck of the world. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, the corporate, uh, ca- the woke capitalists. Um, and this is not news in feminism. Um, I think feminism has been riven by, um, by, um, Divisions, political divisions, sharp political divisions. I talk about corporate feminists and imperial feminists um, who've been around, you know, forever. And I think that that's a better way to use the term than than white feminists, because I think when you when you throw Medea Benjamin from Code Pink and Hillary Clinton in the same uh, category, you don't get much you know, understanding of what's going on. Hillary Clinton is an imperial feminist. I heard her last night talking about the rule of law and freedom in reference to the Ukraine-Russia struggle, as if the United States ever respected the rule of law or promoted freedom in the world. So, and I, I think it's, So I think Women's History Month is still necessary. It is still going to be a site in which feminists, um, uh, fight with each other over, uh, you know, the, the little attention that we get from the media and who's going to get the attention are the corporate feminists or the imperial feminists or the, or the more radical and socialist and anti-racist Latina feminists and black feminists going to get media attention as well. Um, so it's, it's, I don't think we're at the point yet where we can let these things go entirely because uh, there's still, you know, so much sexism in the media, in educational institutions, in corporations, in Hollywood, that that Women's History Month gives us uh, a venue to fight in. And sometimes we're going to be fighting with each other, but that too is part of of how social movements grow and uh, explain uh, different versions of different futures that we're fighting for. Right. Well, I agree. And we're going to have to leave it there. Linda Martine Alcoff, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI. Thanks so much.
That was on that was on the wind from the field performed by Ukrainian Village Voices here in New York City. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI ninety nine point five FM. I'm your co-host John Charlton coming to you live with Amma Gagarian. And uh, uh, before we move on to our third segment, uh, as we were talking about at the end of our last uh, interview with uh, Linda Martine Alkoff, it's Women's History Month, and uh, uh, we're delighted to be able to share uh, so many women's voices uh, on this show and uh, across uh, um, many different programs on WBAI this month. And it's your support that keeps WBAI broadcasting during Women's History Month and every other month of the year. Uh, you can support the station by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give number two WBAI.org. Right, and you can call that number 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number 2 WBAI.org. You can become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more and receive many excellent benefits. Or you can donate less if you can't afford that much. Call 212-209-2950 to donate to donate to WBAI and keep community radio, community news, news from the ground coming to you on air. Keep us on air. Go online to give the number to WBAI.org to donate. It's right. 212-209-2950. And, uh, you know, we've had these uh, first two guests that have been so interesting to hear from, Amelia Decodden and Linda Martine Alkoff. And we're going to have another fascinating guest joining us in a, in a minute, Christina Zavarucha. But uh, one more time, I just want to say it, 212 209 2950 become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more and like uh, Amba was saying you'll get many excellent benefits and you'll get ha- have the the knowledge and the pride in knowing that you're you're making this happen you're keeping this radio station on the air uh, we don't have uh, big corporate underwriters we don't have a a big corporate conglomerate backing us um and and we're and we're not pumping out uh war propaganda or any other capitalist propaganda here at WBI. It's radio station for the people. And Amba, one more time, that that number? That number is 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. Or if you prefer not to speak to someone, you can go online to give the number to WBAI.org. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who donated and keep us alive. That's right. And for our final segment this evening, as war continues to rage in Ukraine, we share one person's fascinating story of coming of age in the Ukrainian-American diaspora. As a child, Christina Zabarucha traveled on Saturday mornings to the East Village's Little Ukraine District to immerse in her family's old world language and culture. Over the decades, her relationship to that culture became more complicated one thing she was sure of until this past Thursday, as she, as she writes in a story she has up on the independent.org website, is that Ukraine would always be there. Joining us now to share her personal story uh, uh, of her relationship with her family's homeland is Christina Zavarucha. She's a former New York City public school teacher who now runs a community agriculture project in Binghamton, New York. 
She's also a former indie intern from back in the day and an incredibly gifted singer of Ukrainian folk songs, which she will share with us a little later. Christina, welcome to WBAI. Hi, John. Thank you so much for, for welcoming me. I'm really excited to share my culture, but also very sad to be doing it under these circumstances. Yes, um, and and before we uh, get into that story, just uh, first of all, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is now in its sixth day. And, and your, I guess, just personal gut-level reaction to watching everything that's happening, the, the bombardments of the cities, the exodus mm-hmm. of refugees, and the fierce resistance that's also being mounted by your fellow Ukrainians in the face of overwhelming odds? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's been a roller coaster um, for Ukrainians all over the world. Um, you know, as I, as you mentioned in my, in that story that I wrote, you know, when I was a kid growing up, um, you know, I came from a country that didn't exist. Um, it was being controlled by the Soviet Union And many of the immigrants who came here came here um, because the Ukrainian culture was being suppressed. People were not allowed to speak Ukrainian in public um, or publish in Ukrainian. Um, So the diaspora that came here still has very strong ties to Ukraine. When I see what's happening there, you know, there are just moments of intense despair that this country that we fought so hard to establish is now in huge danger and then there are other moments of just great pride. <laughs> like, I really feel like Ukrainians are handling this with class and that we're standing up for, for our country and for our, our right to exist. And, um, you know, so I'm just going back and forth between um, being very heartbroken, um, but also very um, just feeling a great deal of inspiration. And one thing that has really helped me is the outpouring of support and love that has come from people. You know, I was just feeling incredibly confused and I couldn't really express the feeling of grief and loss that I was feeling on Thursday morning. And I was lucky. I'm actually, I'm a high school teacher. I teach English as a new language up in Johnson City, New York, uh, right outside of Binghamton. And I work with immigrants from all over the world. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't articulate. Like I actually felt I had to step out and, and take take a minute and, and cry. And I just couldn't articulate everything that was going on. So we were lucky to have a snow day on Friday. And that's when I just poured my heart out on the computer, wrote down how I was feeling and, um, you know, wound up actually coming up with this terrific story. Um, but so many people, the outpouring from people has been, um, it's given me a lot of hope. And I'm really grateful for all the support. Right. And this first person piece that you wrote covers your 30 years plus interaction with Ukrainian culture and the roller coaster ride that that's been. Take us back to the beginning of your grade school days in the late 80s when your mom would drive you in from the suburbs on Saturday mornings to the old neighborhood in the East Village for special Ukrainian classes. Tell us about what you would do and what it was like to be in that milieu. Well, um, so first of all, like most most Ukrainian, like most English language learners in the United States um, are actually born in the United States to native language speaking parents. And so just like many English language learners today, I grew up speaking Ukrainian almost exclusively at home. Um, and so every single Saturday when all my friends were watching 
all my American friends were watching cartoons, uh, Saturday morning cartoons on TV. My parents would wake us up at the crack of dawn, drive us across the George Washington Bridge. And, um, you know, basically we'd go to Ukraina's Nauswa, which is Ukrainian school at St. George's, which is on East 7th Street in the East Village. And we'd go there from about nine to one. And when we would go, we would have different classes. Some would be um, entirely in Ukrainian. We'd have, you know, history and we'd have literature. We'd have art history. And we also had music. And I had a really terrific um, music teacher, Panya Olenech. And it was like nothing fancy, right? She had a little cheesy kind of Casio keyboard. And she would teach us all these songs. And she was somebody who from, you know, saw some some talent in me. She thought that I could sing. And um, she taught me some really incredible songs. Um, and then after after Ukrainian school, we'd go to Ukrainian Scouts, which is on 9th Street, if you know where Veselka is. On the second floor of Veselka is uh, PLOST, which is the Ukrainian Scouting Organization. It's an international organization for the Ukrainian diaspora. And um, I would go there and I would learn, you know, I feel like my love of nature, my love of music, my love for justice. Um, I learned that first in Ukrainian, not in English. Um, and, and it was kind of like a way, you know, to help to help me kind of navigate through the world. Um, the, um, and I'd go from Ukrainian scouts um, to my grandparents' house where we'd have some borscht or some, you know, chicken hearts or other kind of traditional Ukrainian foods. And then I'd go from there uh, a little bit uptown to Ukrainian dancing. And, and I just want to reiterate, I'm just one of many, many Ukrainian Americans, right? So my experience is just, just one person's experience. And there are people that are much more immersed than I am in the Ukrainian culture. And then there are people that have much looser ties to their Ukrainian culture. Um, sure. But it was a huge part of my experience. And at the time, you know, as, you know, as this kind of, I guess people call it a third culture, right? I'm not an immigrant, but I'm not completely an American. I'm a Ukrainian American. And so I was kind of on this edge between Ukraine and here. And uh, I definitely kind of had a hard time in American school. Um, you know, my culture was different. The foods that we ate were different. My last name, Zavrucha, is unpronounceable and, you know, very difficult to spell. Um, but at the time, I kind of felt like, you know, I had this other alternative universe that I could kind of dip into. And anytime I've dipped into that culture, um, it's been incredibly powerful. Right. And now you write in your article that uh, as you got older, I guess you became a teenager and went to college, uh, that uh, some of that unconditional love you once felt for Ukrainian culture uh, uh, changed. Uh, uh, can you talk about uh, why that was? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think that, you know, I have a lot of love for my culture, but, you know, even with cultures that you love, there are things that need to grow and change. And um, at the time, you know, I actually I won a scholarship and wound up going to India for a month when I was 16 years old and got exposed to, you know, um, people who were Muslim, people who were Hindu, people who had completely different ways of seeing the world, um, you know, and I kind of came back um, even more open and interested 
and other kinds of cultures. And, you know, there were things that made me, you know, I kind of like heard not so much from my family, but from other families, um, pretty casual homophobic or anti-Semitic comments that I did not agree with. And, um, you know, I would say something about it and people say, you know, don't, don't be so serious. It's just a joke kind of thing. And I was like, well, it's not a joke to me. You know, I have, I have Jewish, you know, I was like, you don't even have any Jewish friends. You don't even have anybody, you know, and I was 16 years old, you know, so I kind of felt rejected by my own culture as well. And I was like, you know what, there's a big bright world out there and I'm going to go experience it and explore it. Um, and so I kind of went completely the other way. And you have to realize that the Ukrainians, you know, we were oppressed under the Soviet Union. There was the Holodomid in, you know, the, the 1930s where Stalin created an artificial famine and basically killed 7 to 10 million Ukrainians um, by forcing them to collectivize and um, removing their food supplies. And so many Ukrainians that came here, you know, they very understandably rejected, they became very conservative, very pro-religion to generalize, you know, more pro-religion, um, very critical of, of socialist and communist views. Um, and you have to understand where that comes from. Right. So, and, and you know, I think, um, I can definitely relate to growing up uh, with a culture that feels like home, um, but you're growing up in uh, maybe a, a country that's more socially democratic and it arises these questions. Um, mm -hmm. But but later as an adult, you decided to reconnect with Ukrainian culture in a way that worked for you and what did reflect your values. So I'm going to read a short passage from your article and you can comment on it further afterwards. Mm -hmm. A family member approached me for help maintaining a rustic bungalow at a Ukrainian camp in Pennsylvania. I re-engaged with my Ukrainian culture, but on my own terms. I brought my gay best friend, Jewish then boyfriend, and Black and Asian friends to spend time with me at the camp. I even wore my Black Lives Matter hat to church a few times. People were welcoming or at least willing to have the conversation. The culture is shifting. So comment on that and then why you wore that shirt to uh, a BLM shirt to your, your, your Ukrainian church. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so let me kind of, you know, I think that my love of Ukrainian culture is what helps me love and feel passionate about other cultures. You know, so I minored in Arabic in college. Um, I've since made a career of working at the intersection of organic agriculture and um second language acquisition and literacy development. So I've worked a lot with immigrants and refugees and preliterate smallholder farmers, um, helping people read, write, and grow food at the same time. That's, that's kind of my passion project. Um, you know, and, and the thing is that I always tell my students that, you know, <laughs> you want to make changes in your community. Go back into your community and make the change there that you want to see. And so I realized that if there were changes that I wanted to see, you know, I'd have to go back to my own community, um, you know, and change doesn't happen overnight. And I think that the more that people kind of interact with each other and have these conversations, that's how the culture begins to shift. And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, I, I you know, when I, when I wore my BLM hat to church, you know, I was kind of thinking like, well, you know, 
<laughs> what is the what is the one white space that I'm a part of? Well, that that's it. That's the community that I need to start these conversations with. And while in the beginning it was very awkward, um, I did have several people approach me one on one to start having conversations um, that needed to happen. You know, so and what I've always been afraid of is that, you know, maybe my my own culture might reject me, but that's never actually happened. You know, people still welcome me. I'm still part of that community, um, even though, you know, my my views are different. And, you know, there are people now um, whose sons have, you know, uh, you know, people people with with gay marriages in the community. Um, I think that there's a lot more marriage between different cultures. And the thing is that Ukraine itself, I would say in general, is maybe more progressive than some of the community that came over here. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. The world is changing uh, in, mm-hmm. in some ways for the better, for sure. Uh, so uh, we, we have to wrap up here in, in a moment. Um, you know, uh, for our audience, uh, uh, Christina was in uh, Lviv, uh, Ukraine, one of the major cities in, in the country in 2014, when there was a democratic uprising uh, to replace uh, a corrupt president, uh, set in motion some of the things that led to the current conflict. And so you were there uh, during that, and uh, we we have to go in a minute. And I, I want to thank uh, uh, everybody who helped with the show, including uh, Re- uh, Reggie Johnson, our board operator. But a- as we uh, depart today, uh, can you sing uh, for us the the song you sang in the Central Plaza uh, with your fellow Ukrainians, many of whom had did did not know these songs existed because of the language suppression there? And I understand this is a, a song about freedom. Hmm. So yeah, I was um I was there for a permaculture convergence and we, um, we've got it. We got to like uh, kind of okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. It took so long. There was so many other things that I wanted to say, but um, I'll go ahead and sing. So okay. it goes. Um, All right, take it away, Christina, and and then we'll fade out here. Okay. <laughs> Bidnenka lejala i plakasi. I hopic pomihi polipši laptašok sabula joho. Poleti lamesni. Ne mihtoj hlopčinu pustiti si ptašok, bi ne zrozumil, što spivali vitre, što voljice napisnja si ptašok i tak. Mi kochani ja też muszę żyć, że wolę cena rodna pieśnia si ptaszok i tak. Mi kochani ja też muszę żyć.